Hello, and welcome to the next episode of our Tilney Investment Podcast. I'm Tom Hawkins, Investment Director from Tilney's London office, and I'm talking with Ben Seeger-Scott, our Head of Multi-Asset Funds, about the state of investment markets over recent weeks and some topical themes dominating our thinking. We're recording the podcast from our homes today on Tuesday, the 3rd of August. Before we begin, here's some important information. Nothing in this recording is intended to constitute advice or recommendation, and you should not take any investment decision based on its content. Any opinions expressed may be subject to change without notice. Remember that the value of investments can fall as well as rise, and that you may not get back the amount you originally invested. Past performance should not be considered a reliable indicator of future returns. Different funds carry varying levels of risk, depending on the geographical region and industry sector in which they invest. You should make yourself aware of these specific risks prior to investing. If you're unsure about the suitability of an investment, or if you need advice on your specific requirements, you should seek professional financial advice. So, Ben, perhaps you could start with a recap on what's been happening with markets lately. Thank you, Tom. Uh, And absolutely, I think if we look back at July... Uh, it's a fairly rocky month, all things considered. There were lots of things thrown into the mix. Obviously, we've had quite an extended run uh, from the start of the year, and investors are clearly digesting some latest developments, fresh fears of outbreaks, particularly the spread of the Delta variant. Also, we've seen some, some regulatory crackdowns on parts of the Chinese market that, that's really impacted sentiment. All came together to, to impact momentum a little bit overall. Um, if we look at developed market equities, they had a bit of a dip in the middle of the month. It was hard to pin down one particular event. Sometimes you get this in markets. You just get a confluence of various different factors that, that eats away at uh, a confidence, causes a bit of a dip. But actually, developed markets managed to, to bounce back. If you look at global equities, global developed market equities, they actually eked out a, a 1.8% return for the month of July. And that leaves them at 15, 1.5% the year so far. So pretty decent like I said, a little bit of uh, momentum seeming to ebb away. There's a lot more action when it came to emerging markets. Emerging markets actually had a pretty poor month. They started off under pressure, and that bit in the middle where we talked about about the wobble, whereas developed markets sort of shrugged that off and bounced back, emerging markets continued to fall actually down uh, almost 6%. For July overall. In fact, year to date, they briefly dipped into negative territory at a small bounce towards the end of the month. So they're, they're just marginally positive year to date at the end of July, um, but still only a 0.2% return. And that's actually marks a correction since their highs in February, a correction being a more than 10% fall in technical sense for, from its highs and really moving in the opposite direction to developed market equity. So, so a clear difference between them. Um, that's equities. In terms of government bonds, that continues to be a really interesting area. For most of the first half of the year, we saw a recovery trade, so government bonds are broadly weakening. That's really gone into reverse, government bonds continuing to, to strengthen. We obviously look at yields. Yields move uh, inversely to, to the price movement. So if we look at our, our sort of standard benchmarks, the 10-year gilt 10-year UK government bond, uh, that fell 15 basis points, 0.1%. 1.5% as last seen just below uh, 0.6%. US Treasuries went even further, their yields falling 25 basis points, so now 1.22 and closing in on that 1% mark, whereas a few months ago they were, they were flirting with heading towards the 2% mark. So really that takes government bonds all the way to back where they were in February before we had this sort of recovery trade. And I think that's sort of uh, reflecting 
some of the concerns and the outlook looking perhaps not quite as rosy as when we thought in the mix in the midst of, of that recovery. And I think that's not to say that there's definitely trouble ahead, but I think it's a more realistic. Often when you get these recoveries, a lot of people, there's just a lot of enthusiasm and optimism. And everyone thinks everything's going to be fine. I think this just reminds us that the points we've been making throughout this year and, you know, indeed since the, the pandemic, that any recovery tends not to be in a straight line. And there are obviously elements to worry about around the edges. Uh, and the other bits in terms of commodities, not a huge amount of movement. Gold and oil gaining around 2%, pretty small fry uh, for those commodity markets, though. And sterling up a little bit gaining around half a percent against uh, the, the dollar and the euro, but, but not a huge amount to, to write home about there. A lot of the action was in commodities, particularly emerging markets. And again, those big government bond moves. Thanks, Ben. Really helpful recap across the various different asset classes. Um, I want to pick up specifically on the developments in recent weeks in China, um, particularly the Chinese regulator and state administration intervening in the sectors of education, technology and food delivery. To your mind, um, what impact does this have for confidence and growth prospects for the Chinese investments of our clients, whether that be held directly or indirectly? I think it's, it certainly has some short-term impact. What I think for me, it really highlights some of the risk you have investing in uh, developing or, or an emerging markets more generally. Obviously, sentiment moving into this period of the market wasn't sky high, particularly given the, the spread of the Delta variant uh, in parts of emerging markets. And obviously, the background says we're also now seeing some fresh outbreaks of the Delta variant in China. Um, but I think it's some of the, the, the more regulatory challenges that have been building for a while. And I think it just reminds us that uh, emerging markets broadly, and China's no exception, have additional risks that aren't just captured purely, perhaps if you look at some of the more mechanical measures, the, the likes of volatility. And that's why whenever we look at emerging markets in China, we pay close attention to some of those, those broader risks that we, you can't capture in, in those particular metrics. As you say, the authorities in China are looking to, to crack down on a lot of big business there. A lot of them tend to be uh, heavily based on technology. But I think technology is now part of so many different businesses. We're really, really seeing a, a very broad impact. Uh, some of the latest ones, in fact, in, in the last couple of days, as we record this, there's been a fresh crackdown or threats to online gaming. There was a report, I think you've got to remember the way uh, a lot of the, the, the Chinese system works. Uh, you have government intervention. You also have uh, government uh, advisors and, uh, and elements of the government sitting on these company boards. And you also have a lot of the press, but a lot of what the press says is just coming straight out of the, the, the Communist Party of China. Uh, and there we saw one of the, the, the news services in the last couple of days talking about online gaming, referring to it by things such as calling it spiritual opium and electronic drug. Um, we've already seen relevant authorities have been requesting greater protection of miners and reminding a lot of these companies of their societal responsibility. And, you know, you look at Tencent, a very large uh, company in China, uh, that's now had to add some limits on how long miners can play their games. You know, online gaming accounts around a third or about 30% of, of Tencent's revenue. So that's been impacted in the last couple of days. We've seen the big impact from a lot of these these tutoring companies, private tuition, which is a $100 billion uh, per annum market. Uh, the, the, the authorities in China have now insisted that that has to be done on a not-for-profit basis if you're doing tutoring for primary 
and middle schools that's really hit that market. And a lot of these companies, although they're based operated in China, they list overseas, particularly in, in New York. You know, three of the most noteworthy education technology stocks uh, listed in New York, based in China. We've seen those be hit by six, by around sixty percent uh, on the back of this news. And there's others. You know, you just got to think back last year. Amp Financial had to pull its thirty-seven billion dollar IPO, and its owner Jack Ma was severely uh, reprimanded. And all of this ties together. We're seeing what appears to be. Uh, the Chinese authorities moving from market to market, and really just tightening up and reminding uh, companies there that they sort of do operate at the, the behest of the Chinese Communist Party. And I think it's it's something that's been boiling for a while. If you look back through some of the, the speeches uh, that the government uh, government has been giving, the, the signs were there that some of these risks were coming. Arguably, what we've seen more recently is further than many expected. But you know, I think this this just reminds us all emerging markets in China, in particular, they can be very attractive places. In the good times, clearly they have tremendous long-term scope in terms of opportunities for for growing markets. The rise of consumers, a burgeoning uh, middle class uh, and upper class looking for more discretionary services. So lots of opportunity, but it's not always possible to marry those economic fundamentals with uh, with investments, particularly through private companies and, and listed companies. And it comes back to reminding us that sometimes in China and other emerging markets, you don't always have as developed financial institutions, but also the governments don't always give the same consideration to shareholders and minority stakeholders that we're used to in developed markets. So it does just remind us you have to be very careful. Um, I think w- when one looks at investing in China, you should always be highly selective in the exposure that you get anyway. It is possible to invest directly in China, but you've always got to be very conscious of uh, of the societal background, what the government's directions, intentions are, and what may or may not happen. So you always have this additional risk consideration. You've always got to factor in, and you can't always do it in a risk-adjusted return fashion that we're used to thinking about it very mechanically. You just need to consider the potential returns for some of these uh, th- these sort of risks that come in at the side. I mean, if you don't want to invest directly in China, uh, a good option can also be to do it indirectly. That can be through a few different routes. Quite often, uh, many of, particularly when we use third-party funds, many of the, the best managers that we know will look to invest indirectly. You can invest in companies in other countries in the region, particularly the likes of Singapore, that has very close uh, economic ties with China, uh, and also, slightly tangentially, but a lot of managers that, that we know try and get their broad mainland China exposure through Hong Kong, which historically has been a, a, a relatively reliable way to do it. But obviously, some of the security law crackdowns over the last couple of years has brought a lot of that into question. But I think the final way to look at it, and, and one of the angles that we probably have, particularly in the, in, in the sort of century managed portfolios um, that, that I tend to look at, we probably have a lot more exposure to emerging markets in China than if you just look at country of listing, because you also get it through a lot of developed market companies. Think of a lot of the, the consumer goods brands that may be listed and based in the developed world, but do a lot of their trade and a lot of their customer base in China as well. So, you know, there are those three different ways to look at it. But as always, it's important to be selective and not just find a good company that you like that's based in China, listed in China, and assume that it will be able to grow um, unencumbered by the Chinese Communist Party. That tends not to be the reality in China. Thanks, Ben. I dare say we'll keep a watching brief on the situation as it evolves. Um, 
Moving from east to west, last week, the US posted strong GDP growth of 6.5% for Q2 2021. I'm wondering whether you think that this, together with US CPI inflation, latest print of which was 5.4% in June, means the Federal Reserve has any concerns of the economy overheating? Yeah, I think this this, this has been uh, another situation that's been brewing. Well, it, it's been bubbling under the surface for the last six months, but it's been brewing um, sort of for the last year or two. And it ties in with many different aspects. One of the, the, the concerns we highlighted at the start of the year we're going through this this punchy growth phase. A lot of the fiscal stimulus has helped, helped front load some of that economic growth. And against that, we've always been conscious that the emergency measures put in to deal with COVID-19 last year have to, at some stage, get withdrawn. Some of those stimulus, stimulus measures are directly from the central bank, so cutting interest rates, introducing QE policies, and a lot of the other packages. And those naturally have to, to, to roll off. But more broadly as well, as the economy recovers the Fed does start to worry more about overheating. And I think central banks have been very careful with their, their rhetoric not to spook investors. But I think fundamentally, central banks are always going to worry about inflation. They're trying to, to walk a very careful line uh, at the moment. But a lot of that strong economic recovery, both in terms of the GDP growth, and as you say, uh, inflation numbers, I would I, I would suggest from everything that you can read coming out of central banks is, is definitely focusing their thinking. Recall at some point QE does have to be, we all very likely has to be withdrawn. And there was talk about that all the way back in January. That caused a little bit of a wobble. And since then, there's been uh, all Fed members have, have towed a very tight line uh, and been very clear that not even talking about it, not even thinking about thinking about it. And we've moved in the last couple of months to thinking about thinking about tapering. And what we're now starting to see is a lot of different views. Just in the last week, one Fed member Waller has talked about the, the, the jobs jobs report. We've had a couple of pretty reasonable jobs reports if you look into the fine details. Uh, and they've obviously suggested we just had a Fed meeting in July. The next one isn't until the end of September, the 21st and 22nd. So between now and then, we have two jobs reports. Uh, and this Fed member has suggested if we have another strong report or two strong jobs reports, then maybe we'll be some way towards the sort of normalisation that they'd want to see before they start enacting QE that could take five or six months. So all of this is now very much in the mix. Now, that doesn't necessarily reflect the whole view of the, of the Federal Reserve Monetary Rate Setting Committee. What it does do is highlight there's now a range of views, whereas before everyone was, was towing that, that single line. So I think we have a range of views, and at some point, that's likely to have to get withdrawn. And a lot of that is to deal with some of the inflationary outlook. And I think the message that the Federal Reserve and other central banks are trying to be very clear on is that whilst they'll allow inflation to pick up a little bit, they're not going to let it get out of control. And we saw that, and I think we talked about it recently, with uh, with the new dot plots. That signal that the Fed is willing to increase rates in the medium term from extremely low emergency lows, just taking them off the floor a little bit, that's highlighting the Fed will tolerate some uh, inflation but won't let it get out of hand. And I think that's what we're starting to see in markets. Inflation expectations aren't accelerating away, but so there's been some moderation in terms of, uh, of where markets expect uh, central banks to deploy the interest rate. And that's important because that implies that, uh, that the market in aggregate doesn't think that this situation will necessarily get away from, from the Federal Reserve and they'll be able to keep it under control. And there's always this careful interplay between the inflation rates 
and where where, where uh, interest rates are going to go and those expectations. And it's really been about uh, about carefully sort of monitoring and, and managing those. And it's more than just the Fed. I mean, the ECB is doing something similar now. The European Central Bank, uh, they've now come out with this slightly modified target. They're now looking for a symmetrical 2% target. And again, it's this language. It's about symmetrical targets. It's about average inflation targeting. Before, the European Central Bank had a clear target of below, but close to 2%. So signaling really they weren't going to tolerate an overshoot. Now, the Fed, the European Central Bank, the Bank of England have all signaled a little bit of catch-up inflation isn't going to prompt them to move. And that's really helped some of the thinking out there. So I think the Fed is now quite actively thinking about how it's going to withdraw this, this QE. And that's a necessary precondition to a year, two, three years time starting to increase interest rates. And it does make life a lot more interesting when it comes to, to, to the investment outlook from here. Thanks, Ben. Developing the debate on inflation a little further and perhaps viewing through our clients' lens. Many column inches have been written in recent months about the threat of higher inflation. And what, having spoken to many of our clients, um, I get a sense that they really want to know is, if inflation does remain persistent, is there merit in maintaining the fixed income exposure in their portfolios? Yeah, I mean, inflation is very much the, the topic du jour. It's something we're, we're watching very closely. And as you highlighted before, everyone tends to look at the US. That, that is often a lead indicator for where, where global inflation ends up and, and how it impacts everyone. Um, and, and certainly there are, because we, we do think about what would we do if our sort of base case doesn't doesn't come through. Um, I would highlight when, when one considers that, that one's investment strategy, you need to be very careful, I think, to, to look at your base case Look at some of the tail risks, and obviously, persistently and consistently higher inflation is a risk. Think about what one would do. There are, however, risks to over uh, overexposing oneself to a higher risk uh, environment, higher inflation environment, I should say, if that doesn't then manifest. And even though headline inflation is is currently um, looking a little bit toppy, our expectation is still it will come down to a more elevated level. And if we decompose how we're looking at inflation, a lot of the idiosyncratic COVID factors driven by energy, some of the base effects from low, low prices last year, uh, used cars in the US and some of these other hotel measures and things are indeed spiking. But underlying inflation, which is sort of everything else, has been trending lower over the last few months. And it shelters some of those housing costs that we're keeping close eye on. So it does very much remain our base case. But if it were to persist higher, obviously it does impact fixed income. There are things that you can do within fixed income. So, for example, you probably wouldn't want some of the longer dated conventional government bonds if inflation's rising, because one component of, of those yields, those nominal yields, is inflation. The other is the market's expected uh, interest rate response. So, as inflation rises and you have an expectation of normalising interest rates, long dated bonds are pretty unattractive. So. You, know, you can you can keep the duration on these. That's effectively the, the expiry for this this government debt. You can keep that pretty short to mitigate some of that. You could also take a bit more corporate credit on board, um, which helps to mitigate that a little bit as well. That's more reliant on, on the credit worthiness and, you, frankly, the reliability of corporations to pay to pay back their debt. But fundamentally, I think if inflation does persist at a higher level, that does make fixed income more broadly unattractive. And in a diversified portfolio, if you take out some of that fixed income exposure 
you probably don't want to end up putting that into equities because typically equities have a higher volatility and that will just up your risk overall. So there are potential opportunities if you look into alternatives, um, particularly a lot of, you know, we look at some absolute return funds, sort of retail versions of, or relatively retail versions of hedge funds. There's some potential there. I mean, they're not all of the highest quality. So you've, again, you've got to be selective, but you can find good managers. Uh, and certainly when, when we look at the, the some of the historical evidence, you know, those, those managers have an ability to add value over the long term, and they tend in aggregate to be less influenced by inflation. There you're, you're looking to, to absolute return managers to make you, in the way we run money, a relatively lower lower level of risk, lower level of return, a sort of steady uh, clipping of, of returns, regardless of the economic backdrop. So there is some potential in there, uh, and certainly that you know that that's that's a very reasonable strategy if you think inflation would remain high. And there are some other things that you could look at as well. Obviously, equities over the medium term tend to do relatively well or be able to relatively well tolerate inflationary environments. But you need to be on the lookout for shocks. When you have inflation shocks, it can hit equities and fixed income together. So certainly, certainly not entirely straightforward. Thank you, Ben, for your comments today. Most interesting as ever. We'll be back again soon with a new episode. If you have any feedback, questions or comments, please send us an email at podcast at tilney.co.uk. Thanks for listening.